Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Every day, hundreds of thousands of us are building a future we can all be proud of. For over 36 years, the growth CBUS My Super Investment option has returned an average of 8.98% per annum for its members while investing in projects that not only create jobs, but a better future. CBUS, for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, go to cbussuper.com.au for a PDS. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is The Final Word, story time with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, a cricket show where we look at the long past and some of the more recent past of cricket, even some of the present, sometimes the future. Who knows if time runs in one direction or not? We are not that advanced in the field of physics. What we do know when we look to the future is that there has been some talk and it's becoming more than talk that The Final Word should go on tour to... A, Pakistan, B, Brazil, C, Pakistan and Brazil. The natural combination, <laughs> you know, when when visiting one, why not the other? And people are getting very involved in this idea to the point that we may actually have to follow through with it. Hello, Adam. Hello, Jeff. I'm absolutely committed to doing this. We've had a lot of support to go to Derek Ishmael Khan Cricket Club, Derek a Dream, as the documentary will be called, and then to, to back it in with a, a trip to Brazil and to play with and or against the Brazil national team. Now, we have a physio, potentially, Elise Gain. Uh, she needs some convincing, but she said she's been hitting them well in the net. So I reckon between now and then we can get Elise over the line. We've now mm-hmm. got three scorers. Ellie Higgs was the last person to drop us a line about this, uh, submitting her formal application to be the chief scorer for the tour of Pakistan and Brazil. Example scorecards can be provided on request. <laughs> can only guarantee accuracy if there's a live quick info feed to keep me right. Well, there won't be one of those, Ellie, but um, I'm sure you'll keep a nice, neat book with your other two scorers. Yeah, that's why um, we have three Simon. scorers because you've, you've got <laughs> yes. to allow for attrition on a tour like this that there will be distractions. People will be trying to hollow out fruit and put drinks in them. They'll be sort of working out which fruits this works for and which it doesn't. That's and right. Yeah, they're not, we don't want a situation where we have to find an extra run to turn a 554 partnership into a 555. <laughs> Yeah, so we've got, what, three scorers, a kit sponsor, Simon Wallace, who's already put mm-hmm. his hand up, the physio, Elise Gain, and Simon Trafford, Simon Old Trafford from Nottingham, uh, wants to come and be our photographer. So I think we've yes. got, like, three players in addition to you and I. More support staff than players, like England's Tour of Australia in 13-14. Uh, I think that was one of the headlines back then, wasn't it? So mm-hmm. it's all coming together nicely. So if you uh, fancy being part of this quite preposterous tour, given that we're planning it, while we're still in a pandemic, it might be seen as a, a fraction and getting ahead of ourselves, but that's fine. Mm. It, it's, it's good to dream. Dare it to dream with us on the final word. Drop us mm. a line. Yeah, look, we, it's going to be safe. Obviously, we'll have a lot of Zolio units so we can hit the SOS button <laughs> if required. Um, but I think the important thing is to have 
way more support staff than players. Let's go all out on this. Why not see if we can double or triple the retinue of a usual England England trip? You know, <laughs> let's get a couple of chefs involved. Let's get a nutritionist on board. Let's get yes. a, a, a travelling cocktail maker. Um, yes. You know, why not? Let's <laughs> let's bring a language coach. Um, let's make the retinue as ridiculous as possible. Let's have several buses worth of people pulling up to the ground and then we'll make our own crowd. We won't actually need to, to, to get a crowd in because we'll already have one. So this is, yeah. this is um, the way of the future. It's always nice when these uh, when these ideas get a bit of momentum. I mean, we've done a number of silly things on the final word over the years, but this will take the cake. So, yep, the more support, the better. Get in touch on Patreon or on Twitter or send us an email and, and let us know mm-hmm. your intention to visit Brazil and Pakistan with us next year. Now, let's have a quick episode of Dun 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 Hicks Watch. Uh, the eye on Jody Hicks from your Hicks Watch correspondent, John O'Halen. Last week, we thought that we were heading up to the last um, the last week of Hicks watch but we've got another week because the grand final has been postponed given that Sydney's been underwater and that's where the the Sydney grade cricket grand final is being played surprisingly but there is a reserve weekend so it's not like one of these cricket Australia postponements which you know just out into the punted into the distant future there's a reserve weekend so if they get on next weekend we'll have another episode of Hicks watch so the semi final got rained out the week before and now the final's been rained out and pushed back very Jody Hicks energy but John says that if play does not occur in the final, Jody Hicks will end the season with stats of five matches, 255 runs and an average of 85. He says her absence during the first half of the grade season was due to her fielding commitments with the Sydney Sixers during the BBL. He's starting to hope that on the back of a strong finish this summer, another big bash club may come knocking. The dilemma Mm. then being, do you want the Sixers to contract Jody Hicks again and maintain this incredible record of games without being allowed to actually participate in the games? Or do you want her to go to another club and play a key role in knocking off the Sixers next summer? Because how sweet would that be? (laughs) It's got to be the ladder, doesn't it? I mean, given the mm. way things played out in the WBBL this year, where she did get a few more opportunities and luck just didn't break her way, if she did end up perhaps across town at the Thunder and mm. a club who haven't been going quite as well as the Sixers, who knows? It might mean that um, she can become a star in her own right. And Wouldn't that be sort of a lovely place for this story to go after tracking it for, what, I guess, nearly three years now, Jeff? We've been watching the Jody mm. Hicks stats carefully, but... Yeah, we've got to get her signed up first. Another BBL, another WBBL contract for Jodie Hicks mm. is a must, especially if she can um, turn it on the grand final this weekend. Good luck, Jodie. All right. We'll uh, bring Hicks Watch to you on the show next weekend. And speaking of keeping an eye on things across various platforms, uh, I've got a very useful message in on the YouTube comments. Not a platform famous for useful messages, but this one was. So Subame Biswas sent... A message to us to let us know because a few weeks ago on the show we were we were grappling with a clue uh, that was about something to do with a player involving hair or grass, and I'd eventually decided that it must refer to Zulfika Baba, as in a barber is someone who cuts hair, and this seemed a bit tenuous, a bit specious, but. It was good enough and it, it, it ended up being correct. What I didn't know because I wasn't linguistically across this that Subame Bishwash has told me is that the word Zulf in Urdu, Z-U-L-F, means hair. So Zulfi Kababa's name actually means hair barber. <laughs> 
Oh, that's uh, that's perfect. And it was from Debeshish Biswas, so yes. namesake, I suppose, yeah. who who originally sent through that clue. So it's a nice place to uh, put a full stop on on that brilliant nerd pledge. Yeah, another Biswas connection. So thank you, Debeshish, and thank you, Subame, for filling in the last little blanks. So. Let's use that as the entree into the main part of our show. This is the historical show where we go back through history via numbers. We look at some new numbers, then we look at some old numbers, then we look at some numbers that were wrong, numbers that were right. And we do all of this, Adam, via the medium of a game, a fun little game that we like to play on the final word. And the game is called Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge, the game we play with people on our patron page. They support the show by sending us a really specific amount of currency, not a normal round amount, but an amount that is a number that relates in some way to cricket. And we have to calculate what that number might mean. The first of these numbers comes in this week from our American correspondent, Brian Arcane. The number is $1.66. And there is a clue from Brian. You don't have to send a clue, but you can. The clue from Brian comes via a quote from Lawrence Booth when he used to write for The Guardian. And that quote says, It was ruthless, perhaps, but necessary. Adam Collins, 166. Yes, this was from the match report from a game. It didn't take long to work out what this was because it, it relates to a game where the USA played in the Champions Trophy of 2004 against Australia. Mm. And in the match report that reads, it was ruthless, perhaps, but necessary. Should rain ruin the clash of the Antipodeans at the Oval on Thursday, Australia's superior run rate will see them through to the last four where they could meet England. Now... This comes back to when the USA were permitted to play in that Champions Trophy competition, when it was being expanded, when there was that attitude at ICC headquarters to to include associate nations in major tournaments. Of course, that's not the case anymore, but it was then. And Australia ended up beating uh, the USA in just two and a half hours. It didn't go well for America. They were all out for 65, and Australia made the score for the loss of one wicket, thus 1466, which is Brian's number. I I wondered initially whether it might be to do with how many balls or how many minutes there were in the game, 166, but there was 144 deliveries that were faced by America when they were all out, so 24 overs. And yeah. Australia um, faced. <laughs> you I got think, really deep into some, some theories. Um, <laughs> like I, I, I happened upon some of your notes before you got to the answer, and it was it was like that image of Charlie from Always Sunny with the all the all the pictures on the wall and the bits of red string linking them all, and you're like, yes. it's got to be here somewhere. And, and then you figured out it was just the score of the match, just one for sixty six. Yeah, I thought minutes as well, but there wasn't quite a one hundred and sixty six minutes in the game. I think it was one hundred and forty one, one hundred and nine minutes for the US. Say in 33-4 Australia Casper took four Dizzy took four Glenn McRae would have been furious with his none for 13 from six overs I'm sure <laughs> uh, Steve Messiah top scored for the USA with 23 batting at number four he was the only man into double figures annoyingly though this was the, the last one day international that he played because of the mm. lack of opportunities of course and to play official one day games they can now of course having qualified for that status in the level below the, the World Cup Super League that's operating at the moment but yeah he played in the national team from like 1999 to 2014 and only Mm. two of those 50 over games were classified as one day internationals but yes that that will certainly be uh, where we start today with Brian Arcane's one for 66 USA all out 65 Australia one for 66 winning by nine wickets in half an hour Steve Messiah should have played test cricket because on the third day he could rise again (laughs) our next new number comes in from a long-time friend of the show, Mrs. Sorby, who 
was sitting there on a Julio pledge for a couple of years, just chilling out in the background, taking it easy, and then wanted to step up to nerd status, but has done so with a Julio pledge. Very contradictory. So this is this is $3 even, 3.00, but Mrs. Sorby was at pains to point out that this was a nerd number, not a Julio number. Yeah, that's right. We, we read out some correspondence from Mrs. Sorby a few weeks ago explaining how she sort of knew, well, she she knew of me in my former life, having worked in the in the department, and uh, and we have a number of mutual friends. But for the purpose of Nerd Pledge, uh, she says that we are looking for a childhood hero that she and I share, one that um, she watched on television as a kid. Uh, the parents always had the cricket on. And initially, as a young girl, it used to anger her that the cricket was always on until she found Mark War, and she was obsessed from there. She insisted on watching the cricket recording Mark War's innings on video, which is something I did as well, <laughs> um, so she could watch them over the winter. She plastered her bedroom wall with posters of Mark. She subscribed to Inside Edge. She goes on to say, I have such fond memories of staying up in the middle of the night to watch overseas games, particularly the 1996 World Cup. I'm still dirty that Mark was robbed of the Player of the Series award in that one. And this number is exactly as it looks for 300. Jeff. Well, that did make me wonder if it had something to do with Mark Waugh. I thought that could be the case, <laughs> given... Well, it was either that or Dean Jones, if it were, you know, childhood heroes that she <laughs> shares with you. But did Mrs Sorby ever drive to Jollymont to protest about Mark Waugh being dropped from the test team? I don't know. <laughs> I still, I, I still want to know. Yeah, I, I still want to know what would have happened that day. So it was November 2002. So I'd had my licence yeah. for a few weeks. No, 02 oh, yeah. it would have been. Yeah. So just before the 0203 Ashes, I had my licence for like a month and I drove up from Dandenong to sit in front of Cricket Australia for a number of hours, maybe like three hours, hoping to see Trevor Holmes to give him a piece of my mind about him <laughs> dropping Mark Wall before the Ashes. I mean, would I have done it? Had I seen Trevor, yeah. would have I – I mean, I, I suspect I probably would have. But, I mean, what goes through a young bloke's mind? I mean, anyway, that, yeah. that, that's best for the – that's best to be delved into in, in another in another forum, probably not a podcast. Well, you might have chickened out, I, I find. Like often when you've built something up – to be that bigger thing in your head and you've practiced what you're going to say then you know once the time comes to say it you you don't always go through with it but it would have been interesting you know had you then gone on to have the same life and career that you ended up having and then ended up you know interviewing Trevor Holmes at press conferences 20 years later and he's well, like you look familiar have we met and you're like no no I wouldn't think so <laughs> well it, it kind of came full circle didn't it a couple of years ago the only shot used of me in the uh, Amazon documentaries when I'm at a Trevor Holmes press conference when mm. I kind of, you know, I wouldn't say went after him, but I asked a number of questions about some inconsistencies around advice given to Glenn Maxwell and, and so on, which, you know, it was a tense back and forth and got followed up the next day when um, poor old Tommy Decent got barreled by Justin Langer, the uh, the careless Whispers oh, yeah. press conference. Anyway, that, uh. Uh, that was all part, of the, all part of the Trevor Haynes thing. So, Mrs. Sorby, 300, Mark War, Jeff, what'd you find? Right. I found that you know, Mark Waugh, she may have been videoing the innings when he was batting Mrs Sorby. He was known less for his bowling, but was an important contributor with the ball, as I'm sure you would attest, Adam, with his off spin at one stage. I think it was during the 01 tour of India, he was described as um, giving Australia at least one and a half spinners when he was in the <laughs> team along with um, Shane Warne so that, that it, they could go in with three fast bowlers and Warne and still have you know, enough of the support. Um, that was probably during the heady days after the Mumbai win in which he took three for, I reckon, and picked yep. up in the second innings when they were winning by an innings. He got Tendulkar and Lakshman and he got Ajit Agurka. He got the seventh duck in the Agurka sequence was due to Mark Wall. Right. 
I reckon the fourth or fifth one was as well. One of the first ballers at, at Sydney was from Mark oh, it was the, well, no, so. I think the Mark Wall one was in Melbourne when I think I mentioned oh, yeah. this a couple of weeks ago when he when he faced about twenty balls and ended up holing out to Mark. No, Wall there, there, there was a golden match. duck to Mark Wall for Adjit right. as well. I don't know if it was in addition to. I haven't haven't um, researched this <laughs> in in depth, but I know that a couple of the the wickets in in the seven ducks were courtesy of Me War. So in one hundred and twenty eight tests, he bowled in one hundred and twenty eight innings, which is uh, a pretty consistent uh, contribution. Sent down nearly five thousand deliveries picked up 59 wickets, actually did better in One Day Internationals, got 85 wickets there, but got his lone five-wicket innings in the Adelaide Ashes test in 95, even though they lost and Australia collapsed in a gettable run chase that Mark Waugh had set up for them. He made a few runs in that chase as well, I think, but Devin Malcolm and Chris Lewis knocked them over. And then the reason that this links back to the number of 300 is that across that career, he bowled 808.5 overs, if you divide that by the 2,429 runs that he conceded, the number you end up with is 3.00309087182. And if you round it, as we say, as we said before, we should you know, always look to round where we can um, when looking at cricket averages. We can get out of control with the decimal mm-hmm. points. That's 3.00. So that does the trick. Mark Wall was a handy bowler, especially before he hurt his back. He... Um, mm. He, and his shoulder, I think, subsequently. He was nippy. He took that five-wicket haul in what must have been the first day-night match or first one-day international played with the new Southern Stand, the great Southern Stand. So Malcolm Marshall picks up four in the in the afternoon and Mark War five in the evening, driving Australia to an un- unlikely victory. I was there that night. He picked up, as you say, five wickets in Adelaide Test match. I think I'm right in saying when he was at Essex in 89, he took a stack of first-class wickets and he was basically a dual threat. He was batting, you know, probably batting three and they were able to open the bowling with him on occasion as well. because he, he was, was bowling seam up at that point, wasn't he? Yeah, he, he, he became an off-spinner around the time that that, uh, that Mrs. Sorby refers to, around the uh, yeah. around the 96 World Cup, just beforehand, I reckon, and bowled some overs in that tournament. But yeah, didn't... didn't end, well, yeah, it, it's interesting that he was being used in the 93 Ashes campaign as a, you know, as a legitimate... Sort of change option, kind of the, the role that his brother used to play. And then by the end of his career, he was yeah, half a spinner, um, as you pointed out before, Jeff. So I like it. I reckon that's going to be spot on. Well done. Thank you. Uh, next new number comes in from Matt. No last name. Mysterious Matt. Uh, come on in, mystery man. $5.34. And Adam has the swing at this one. Yeah, and no clue, so I'm able to have a, a little bit of a gallop. And what I thought I would do is draw together a couple of threads from Nathan Lyons' career. So Lyons takes five for 34 on debut at Gaul in 2011. I suppose a, a performance that a lot of us would remember watching. It was probably, I think the test match started at about three in the afternoon and, and that day's play. So we were all watching it, I suppose is what I'm saying. I certainly was watching it in a hotel room in Brisbane with my friend Harry and having, you know, as I've explained before, having played at the same club as Nathan, I was very invested in his rise to prominence. And I remember us jumping on the beds like a couple of teenagers when he took his fifth wicket. It was very exciting. Anyway, what I thought was worth just, pouring over though is the the rise when I mean, we think of Nathan as having just arrived from nowhere from from the from the roller to the baggy green and that's so accurate I mean there is so little cricket for him between moving to Adelaide at the start of the 10-11 summer bearing in mind in 9-10 he was captaining as I say captaining Westies in Canberra and he was 21 years of age and really by that point you're kind of on the pathway or you're not and he was not 
I mean, sure, he was playing for the ACT in the, um, was it, what was it called at the time, the, the second 11 competition, the CA Cup or something like that. But it wasn't as though, I mean, he was being clamoured over for a state contract or something like that. The reason he went to Adelaide, which is well documented, was for his opportunities as a curator. Anyway, so Darren Berry, as we know, spots him in the nets and brings him into the T20 team, takes wickets in the final. It wasn't called the Big Bash then, was it? It was called the Australian T20 competition or, or something like that. It was the... The pre T twenty era. It was what well, I can't even remember what it was called. Big Bash Australia was it called? Was it called Big Bash Australia or something like that? It was uh, had a different acronym. Anyway, so they win the comp SA thanks to Lyon, and he's straight into the Shield team. Takes four for eighty one on debut at the Wacker, ripping out the the engine room of that WA middle order, including Marcus North and Adam Voges, who are both international players. Then he bowls forty overs in the second dig, gets Palmer's Batch and North for a second time in the Test. Queensland at home, then he plays the Vicks at the MCG and picks up Chris Rogers, then in the final game of the summer against Tasmania, gets Ed Cowan and James Faulkner. So he's getting some pretty good scouts in these four first-class games that he plays for South Australia before the end of that season of 2010-2011. Uh, and it's enough to get him on this white ball tour of Zimbabwe, where it was a tri-series with South Africa A, Zimbabwe and Australia A, and it's quite the team. Warner, Finch, Maddinson, Mitchell Marsh, Steve O'Keefe, Tim Payne's the captain, John Hastings, Mitchell Stark, they're all there in this Australia A 50 over team, and Nathan takes 11 wickets at 16 in that week against South Africa A and, and Zimbabwe. And the selectors are like, fuck it, we've seen enough. Let's take him to Sri Lanka. Even though Michael Beer probably outbowled him in the tour game based on the figures, they pick him for the first test at goal anyway, takes five for 34 and, and the rest is history. 399 test wickets all up and still going strong. Obviously not his best 12 months for Australia in recent times, but a lot of gas uh, in the tank, I suppose. He's 30... Two years of age now, Jeff, I suppose. Ten years on from that taboo when he was 22. So that was the first Nathan Lyon link, his taboo. And the second one was that in the first test match, and only test match played at Monica, where he was the curator before going to SA, Australia made 534 for five declared hmm. in that first innings. And Curtis Patterson made 114 not out. So you, you, you combine that test innings, his last test inning so far, and his first match at Brisbane, and he's made 144 test runs for once out, an average of exactly that, 144, which took him above Andy Gantome, Jeff, who we've talked about on the show in the past as having the highest test batting average without qualification. So, in other words, not having to reach that mark of 20 test innings, Gantome made 112 in his only test innings for the Windies in 1948. We had Cole Mayers do so as well a couple of weeks ago, and often players will jump above Gantome home on taboo and then they'll they'll you know regress to the mean as Mayers has done in in his first or well, his next couple of test matches he's down to like mm. 76 or something like that at time of at time of writing but yeah so Andy Gantome and Curtis Patterson uh, remain the only two batsmen that sit above Bradman's 99.94 and Jeff it's entirely possible that Curtis Patterson will never add to that I reckon uh, I mean if he doesn't play another test match it'll mean He's unbeaten 114 in his last innings. His average is 144. And he'll always sit above Bradman and above Gantome and he'll be one of the great quiz questions, I suppose. He's he's not being talked about, is he? He's not in any of the conversations about the, the next few contenders to come in, which does seem a little bit rough given that he was he was good enough to get in the mix in the first place. But look, he's only 
27, 28, Curtis Patterson. Like, he's got some time ahead of him where he could make yep. himself a contender again. But it is interesting that he hasn't been talked about. And, and I, I'm desperate for him to get another test, not so much because I think it's an injustice that he hasn't played more because, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how convinced I was of him as a test batsman to begin with. But just because that number is absurd. And, yeah. and Andy Gantome has held that statistical spot of ridiculousness for so long. Well, there are two spots of ridiculousness. One is that when you take away all qualifications as to minimum number of innings, Bradman still had the best average of anybody, <laughs> like regardless until Andy Gantome had that one curiosity. But it was Bradman and then the one the one little trivia question, you know. But to add another one above that just seems um, – it seems rude. I mean, Andy Gantome's had that spot for so long. So <laughs> I feel like Curtis Patterson morally needs to come down under – at least under 112 <laughs> and probably under 99. You know, he, he can come down to 98. I'm happy with that. But I think he needs to get another test just to give him the chance to, to get that back down to something approaching reality. Yeah, he was part of that collapse at Bell Reeve last week. He was one of the Ducks, uh, one of Jackson mm. Bird's seven wickets when New South Wales were all out for 32. So there's a couple of options for 534. They're both linked to Nathan Lyon. Uh, Matt, his figures on taboo and the score made at the ground that he loved so much at Monica at a test match in 2019. And Matt, if that number's not correct, you can just send us a DM on the old patron and hint to us sweetly in our ears and draw us closer to the truth. Our next number is an edited number from a former contributor to the show, Fred Cowan. The number is £5.52. And uh, a little clue here says, inspired by a tribute you made in episode six of series nine, uh, your tribute reminded me of England's equivalent, in my opinion. Well, Adam, in episode six of series nine, we talked at length, I can tell you because I listened back to it before, about Shane Robert Watson when he decided to hang up the various pieces of apparel on his entire professional cricketing career. Um, the last gig he had was the IPL and then he decided that was it, no more IPL. So the quiz seems to be who is the Shane Watson of England, um, which I like <laughs> as a concept, but I also think it's very broad as a concept because if you want to talk about all-rounders who frustrated people with their lack of complete delivery in either discipline, there are a lot of candidates for that spot for England over the years. Mm -hmm. um, and and it, it is also, as we've discussed, a, a an unfair reflection on Shane Watson, who was a lot better than people thought that he was. But in terms of English all-rounders who copped a lot of stick for supposedly under-delivering, the, the one that jumped to mind was Derek Pringle. But I couldn't find much about Derek Pringle that linked to 552. Uh, my Pringle 552 links are as follows. In the first <laughs> test of the 1989 Ashes series, a test match uh, in which Derek Pringle played and England lost, they were bowled out in the final innings in 55.2 overs <laughs> after being set 400 and something. Also, Derek Pringle's bowling strike rate in test matches was 74. 5.52. Mm, not very convincing. No. <laughs> so I was trying to think of who were, who were maligned English yeah. cricketers. Well, Liam Plunkett's best one-day figures were 5 for 52, but he was, he was dispensed with by selectors but not really maligned by the people. You know, the public appreciated Liam Plunkett. Um, David Lloyd made 552 runs in test matches and, and you know, 
maybe wasn't that highly rated as an opening batsman. Alan Mullally was the kind of player that a lot of people like to bag. His own supporters like to bag, but he wasn't an all-rounder. He had a test batting average of 5.52, um, <laughs> which while meeting the number probably counts him out for how low the number actually was. These days, a, a Trump enthusiast on Twitter, if you ever wanted to jump on uh, Alan Mullally's Twitter feed, it's a fairly fruity um, experience. Phil DeFreitas might qualify as an all-rounder, just about more of a bowler yep. than than a batsman, but his strike rate in tests was 55.2. And not an all-rounder, but someone who used to cop an awful lot of stick from his own supporters, Graham Hick, famously made a 405 in first-class cricket, and that took him 552 minutes. So there are a few 552 options, but I'll throw that to the crowd as well. If uh, if Fred, if I'm not right about it being linked to Shane Watson, but it, you know, but if people want to have a crack at who who is the Shane Watson of England and how does it link to 552, I'd be interested to know. I think it's going to be Graham Hick because Fred's from Worcester, uh, and, well, from Worcestershire, let's say. Uh, I don't know if he's literally from the town of Worcester, but he's from that county, and that's where Graham Hick uh, played his county cricket and certainly where he made that 405 back in 1988, which was yeah the highest score in England for nearly a century. So I reckon, given the way that Hick was treated or thought of, that would be as close to Watson as I reckon England have got because all of the next Bothams that you ran through so whether it's Bull Pringle wasn't the next Botham he was a, <laughs> a contemporary of Bothams but you know he was the he was the next Botham in the pecking order I suppose for England all-rounders and then into you know Defratus and and other characters that you mentioned yeah I don't think they were they were seen quite in the same way that Graham Hick was in terms of underperforming on potential something like that so yeah nicely done nicely worked out All right. Well, hopefully we're somewhere closer to that. Our next number comes in from Andrew Turner. It is £1.36, and there's a hint with that. He says, you'll need to go right back to the pre-test era, and it's related to where I grew up in Hampshire. All right. Big deep breath. (laughs) Let's let's have a go at this one. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, 136. Right. The very first first first-class game in 1772 is contested space. Crick Info and Cricket Archive count the game that was played in 1772, June of that year, between the England 11 mm. and the Hampshire 11. I think they didn't even go by Hampshire, but it was essentially the Hampshire 11. There was no 136s in that game, but that's, what, that's where I started. I thought, well, let's go back to the very start of first-class cricket, which gets written up in the scorecards as we see them today as an England 11 against Hampshire. Three years on from that, 1775, there were four first-class games played, or games that we now retrospectively have dubbed first-class. They were between Hampshire, Kent and Surrey. They, Hampshire played in all of them, and, and the other counties played a couple each. In Hampshire's second game against Surrey in that season, John Small Sr. set a new record for the highest score in these matches, in these what would later be known as first-class matches, making 136. So for a time... It was the world record, and it belonged to John Small Sr., and it was made for Hampshire, and well before Test Cricket, more than a century before Test Cricket started. The previous best score was 107, which was from 1769, which is pre-first-class cricket. So by my deduction, and I might be Mm. wrong here, but on this logic, I suppose it could be said that this was also the first first first-class century, maybe. Yeah, I'll be interested to hear from Pat Rogers to let us know whether he'll have a far better handle on this than me, but whether that might be an adequate way of describing it. 
So in terms of how that score escalated from 136 and beyond, there's a nice report on Crick Info about it. And it explains that Small used a straight bat. Before that time, the players used curved bats because of the underarm mm. bowling, I suppose. And his career in big cricket spanned 42 years between 1756 and 1798. He was still playing yes. for the MCC at age 60. And he's also, allegedly, the reason for the middle stump. A bloke called Lumpy Stevens in 1775 bowled him <laughs> twice where the ball went between what we would now consider to be the off stump and the leg stump. And on account of that, they put in a, a third piece of wood and that became the middle stump. And that's because <laughs> Lumpy Stevens knocked over our man John Small Sr. twice in 1775, the same year where he or didn't knock him records, over more to the or point, or didn't knock him over as it were, yeah. went between the gap, went between the gap, and yes, that was the same year when he made his then record score of 136, which is what I'm going to go with for you, Andrew Turner. And if you're wondering, John Small went on to play 111 first-class games according to Cricket Archive. At an average of 17, so he didn't go well consistently, but he'll always have uh, that record, 136. <laughs> What do you have to do in life to be nicknamed Lumpy Stevens? <laughs> like, like, how does that just bowling into the local town? Hello, I'm Lumpy Stevens. <laughs> Big lump do you, of the lad, I'm sure. Lumpy Stevens, take this one. <laughs> Uh, um, the the original domestic T20 competition was called the Big Bash, by the way. It just wasn't the Big Bash League. It was, uh, the, right. it was the T20 Big Bash between the states when they started playing um, T20 cricket. And then they got, what, 40-odd thousand to the MCG one day and Cricket Australia went, hello, hello, people going to state cricket. Hello, Lumpy Stevens. We can make a quid out of this one. <laughs> Good to have a bit of a real-time fact-checking on the final word. Well played. Yeah. Jeff, next up we have 663 from Nick O'Connell. I quickly had a look before handballing it over to you. It's never a score that's been made in international cricket, and mm-hmm. it's Chris Jordan's cap number. He should have played more than eight test matches, Chris Jordan. But anyway, that's a, a conversation for another time. Over to you. To be honest, I forgot that Chris Jordan had even played test cricket. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm having yeah. a, a really hard time remembering when. Would, would I was at his debut in uh, 2014. Yeah, he debuted against – with. Uh, if I recall correctly, he debuted with Liam Plunkett at Lords against Sri Lanka in 2014 and they mm. came ever so close to bowling out the Sri Lankans on the final day. I was at that day and Jordan bowled beautifully but didn't quite get the job done. But yeah, he was. Oh. Um, he played for about a year. His last test match was in, I want to say, the Caribbean in 2015. So he had a, a brief run in, in those two years mm. and then they sort of pigeonholed him as a white ball only specialist. Is that... The match where Stuart Broad bowls the last over and gets Rangana Herath caught off the glove when they're eight wickets down. That's it. Off the first ball. Yep. And and Herath's got his hand off the glove. He's he's taken his hand off the glove, but he walks. He gets hit on the glove and, and gets caught at at, at uh, leg slip maybe and walks. And then and then what happened? Then there's five balls left, and I think it's Nuan Pradeep who comes out and blocks out the last five and gets given out. He gets given out LB. And they return. Off an inside edge. That's right. Paul yeah. Rifle, I remember this is all, Paul Rifle guns him, but he has a review left because Herath hasn't used the review. He's walked. And so, and they find there's an inside edge on it and, and they, they get through and hold on for the draw. Yeah, I mean, what a series. Game. I mean, both test matches went to the final over because mm. there was the draw at Lords. Oh, the and one where Anderson got James out. Anderson's out from the penultimate mm. delivery of the test at Leeds the following week. So I was there for that fortnight. I was just knocking about in the UK, having a few weeks off, yeah. whatever it was I was doing at the time. And that's why I got a chance to go to Lords and, uh, and watch that, the end of the Leeds test on telly. But um, 
yeah, yeah most incredible. people remember An- the Angelo Matthews finest hour probably that series he yeah, was huge yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Jeff, so 6.63, we're going to go past Chris Jordan and we're going to end up yep. somewhere in Pakistan. Yeah, well, we're somewhere with Pakistan coming to Australia. The first test match that Pakistan won in Australia, 1976-7, they're on their third tour and they won in Sydney when Imran Khan took six for 63 in the second innings to smash up Australia after taking six for 102 in the first, so 12 in the match, Australia all out for 211 and then all out 180, quailing under the ferocious approach of Imran Khan. Pakistan made 360 when they batted, so they only had 32 runs to chase and they they did it to win in four days, so they drew the series um, one all. They've never won a series in Australia, but that's the closest they've got. They've only won four test matches in Australia in 37 matches that they've played. The most recent of those was at Sydney in November 1995, so 26 years ago coming Mm. up for Pakistan. They should have won in Sydney in 2010, but uh, did not for for reasons. (laughs) Um, (coughs) Salman Butt-related reasons, perhaps. Imran Khan's last game in Australia was the World Cup final win of 1992, so had a a long and successful uh, period touring Australia, did Imran Khan. And he's down with the bug this week. He's got COVID. He got vaccinated um, a bit too late, a couple, and he'd, he'd managed to contract the virus before he got the vaccine, so that could land him in some trouble given that he's 68 years old now so all the best to the original Imran Khan out of the 38 or so on Crick Info. Yep the original and the best Imran Khan 6 for 63 at Sydney thank you Nick O'Connell. Next up is 7 for 23 from Cam again thank you Cam again. I'm not sure if that's meant to be uh, Cam signifying that he's making a second pledge, thus Cam again, or whether that's the no name. Cam again was Cam again the first time <laughs> okay. he pledged as well. This is this is the second or maybe even third because Cam again's been on on the the reel for a couple of years, I reckon. Yeah, um, yeah. But he's always been Cam again, even the first time. The original and the best can still be Cam again. All right, Cam, again, this will be... We were just then talking about Pakistan's dreadful record in Australia. Well, that included when Warren took seven for 23 against them at the Gabba in 1995 when he sort of was at that first peak of his career. Watching the highlights back before the show, though, Jeff, gee, they made it easy for him. I mean, yes, Mm. Warren had them under the thumb and they couldn't score off him, but... Out of those seven wickets, five of them are where Pakistani batsmen are trying to pop him on the moon and Warren's just laughing away, thinking how easy is test cricket. So... um. Australia went on to win that by an innings to start that series. That was the fourth instance where seven for 23 has been taken in Test cricket, but Iamunga did so against the Windies on their first tour of Australia in 1931. Richard Hadley routed India at the Basin in 1976. But the one that really stands out in one of the best Test matches ever played is that by Hugh Tayfield, the South African spinner, finger spinner. We talked about staggering come from behind wins with Australia the other day against South Africa actually but it doesn't compare to Durban in 1950 January 1950 so in the first innings South Africa make 311 with Eric Rowan posting a ton for the hosts then Lindsay Hassett's side are routed for 75 with Hugh Tayfield in his offspin, 7 for 23, just 21 years of age at the time, a masterful performance mm. from the tweaker. But despite the fact that there was a huge 236-run deficit, they elected not to enforce the follow-on. Dudley Norse made that call. He was the captain of South Africa. And this is where it becomes almost like the reverse Kolkata 2001. By not enforcing the follow-on, 
Uh, South Africa are then exposed and they're skittled for 99 uh, with Ian Johnson picking up five wickets for Australia. Suddenly it's game on again. The Aussies are set 336 for victory. And it's a four-day test match, so time's running out at the same time. And they're stuffed at 95 for four. Out of that first four wickets, they've lost Morris, Miller and Hassett, their three most experienced batsmen. And all they really have left in terms of ballast in the top order is Neil Harvey, who walks in at number five, the Victorian. And he goes on to play his finest innings for Australia, um, supported by Sam Loxton, fellow Victorian, who made 52. And Colin McCool, an unbeaten 39. Neil Harvey made 151 not out on the fourth and final day. They won by five wickets with 25 minutes to spare. And in terms of, I suppose, a solo effort from a left-hander on the final day like that, it's reminiscent of the 153 that Lara made in, in 1999. And, and according to the report in Wisdom, he was dancing at Hugh Tayfield throughout the innings. And he was known as Australia's best player of spin through that era. Uh, and yes, yeah, seven for 23 taken in that test match at Durban, uh, which goes down really as one of the greats. Very nice. I like that, Adam. And it uh, it matches up if we're talking about great innings with our last new number comes in from John Leather, uh, $1.60, 71, 171. Uh, John Leather goes on Twitter by the name of Hypercost, the great statistician on women's cricket and all things related. So it did occur to me that this could be a more obscure number than the one I'm going to talk about because John knows just about everything that there is to know numerically about the women's game. But it's also one of the biggest and brightest and best numbers in the women's game is 171, the 171 that Harman Preet Kaur made for India in the Women's World Cup semi-final of 2017 to beat the Aussies. 171 from 115 balls, 24s and 7 sixes. Now that sounds pretty good just off the top. When you put it into the context of the match, this is India batting first in a, a format where they've often struggled to put up imposing scores batting first. There's been a rain delay, so the teams have got on with 42 overs each rather than 50. And coming into the 27th over, over India are going slow. They're, they're going at under four and over. They've lost three wickets. They've got 102 on the board from 26 overs. And it just looks like, you know, they're going to sputter along to 180 or something and Australia will run it down with ease. And then in that 27th over, there's there's a wild no ball from Kristen Beams, the Australian leg spinner. It leaves her hand completely, lands off the wicket, I think, metres away. And it gets called a no ball and Harman Preet Kaur bangs the subsequent free hit for six and gets a short ball and pulls it for four and suddenly she's away. So at the point... When the no ball comes down, she's scored 40 from 60 deliveries. Mm. She goes on to make 151 from her next 55. <laughs> Absolutely takes apart the spinners, Beams, Jonathan, Ash Gardner, then starts taking down the seamers, Shoot, Villani, Perry. They all get a bit of a whack around. There's a partnership with Deepti Sharma of 127 runs, of which Deepti makes 25 <laughs> And then when Deepti gets out, Harman Preet just keeps going, just goes on straight through to the end of the innings. So she pushes India up to the VVS Laxman 281, which Australia have to chase from 42 overs. Um, and despite Alex Blackwell hitting a bunch of sixes at the end, they're still six sixes short when they're bowled out with about an over to go. 
171. Harman, pretty cool. Yeah, it works for me. Thanks, John Leather or Hypercourse. I was um, uh, brought to my attention yesterday, Jeff, that there's a there's a website where you can put your Twitter handle in and it'll tell you a couple of things about your, your use on that platform. The first thing is what percentage of news that you access, which is left, right or centrist. And for me, it was 89% leftist news that I'm apparently accessing. I don't know what the 11% fashion I'm, I'm clicking onto is, but anyway. Mm. And the other point was that um, it tells you who your biggest news influencers are. Number one was you. Number two was <laughs> <laughs> number two was Vish, and number three was Hypercost. <laughs> so you're on, you're on the podium as, as influencing uh, my news consumption. The three of you, well done. Um, number one, <laughs> number one. Uh, all right, that's the end of our new numbers. We will do our revisits and confirmations uh, after a short breather. If you want to send us a number and get involved and play the game, you can. It is open to all comers. You just go to the Patreon page, make yourself an account and put your number in. We will see it. We will add it to our list. And uh, you can change your number as well. Once we've done it, you can do all sorts of things. You can have full control over how often uh, that number gets sent or uh, if it's once or if it's many times. All of that is up to you. It's at patron.com slash the final word. And all the people who do that uh, help make the show possible. In fact, they don't help. They do make the show possible because we wouldn't do it if it weren't for that support. It would not be feasible. So please consider jumping on. Let's take a quick break and we'll be back in a sec hi i'm matt renshaw and you're listening to the final word podcast Jeff, last week on uh, our break on Storytime, we were reflecting on how Lord's Taverners have this wide remit. They do so much in the game in areas you wouldn't necessarily expect. And the Brazil uh, national team is one of those areas. All of the different bits of kit they're able to deliver in that shipping container, which needed um, permission from, I think, the the British ambassador got the Brazil government to let them release the kit. And all of these kids Mm. are running around in, like, Joss Butler and Owen Morgan shirts as a consequence. So... Um, brilliant James work. Treadwell James getting Treadwell. a big run <laughs> out, out, out in the streets of Brazil, which is nice to see. Um, yeah, the, the the ambassador had to sign off the shipping container as his personal shipping container, <laughs> so that it, so that it had um, it, it had diplomatic privilege. Like you know, if they'd popped Julian Assange in that shipping container, then they would have been able to get him into Brazil yeah. because no one was al- allowed to open it. Uh, yeah, it was, it was very like diplomatic immunity, Mister Murtor sort of areas, <laughs> but. Again, it, sort of, it, it points to this sort of wide range of work they do. I mean, we spent a lot of time and we'll continue spending a lot of time talking about the sort of stuff on the ground, though. 2020, dreadful year for raising money. 2021, frankly, it's not getting much better um, in terms of having mass huge events where lots of people are able to dip into their pocket perhaps once a year. That's harder at the moment. So it needs to be that more nickel and dime uh, style of fundraising that that you see from, I suppose, a lot of political parties these days. And it's the same for charities. And the Lord's Taverners have been in operation for 71 years. They're one of the leading sports charities in the UK. And what we know is that despite the fact that the, the risk of COVID is diminishing as people get vaccinated over here. There are still a lot of people who, who can't leave the house. There are a lot of people who are at risk and that's the, the, the part of the community, I suppose, who Lord's Taverners have had such a focus on in the last 13 months and making sure they're able to roll out their vital programs when this is all over. Yeah, it's a huge part of the issues with COVID is that people who are um, 
living with disability are more susceptible to the risk from COVID. They've got to be more cautious about avoiding people. Basically, any problem where people are dealing with isolation or loneliness, it's compounded, uh, doubled, tripled more by living with disability or living at disadvantage. If you're in that situation, uh, particularly as a young person without um, control over your own life necessarily, you're much more likely to be isolated or experience loneliness. And and that can end up being quite a damaging thing to people's health as well. So uh, this has always been the focus for Lord's Taverners has been helping, particularly helping younger people in disadvantaged situations to try to give them opportunities. That's why they were shipping sporting gear across the world to, to try to help young people in Brazil. And they're doing the same sort of thing to try to help young people in the UK to, to put on programs that that provide a social environment for kids and for young people. So that's the mission that they're out to achieve and, and that's why we're really happy to help them because there's no doubt in our minds that this is a really good cause to try to get behind. Yeah, and here's the good news. The positive spin is that later in the year, these programs will return with gusto and they need to fund them to make this viable that needs um, contributions from, from people around the cricketing community especially and in the absence of these big fundraisers. The scale isn't that big either. I mean, when you when you break it down, as Lord's Taverners have for us, if you're willing to contribute the equivalent of a coffee a month, so three quid a month, it means that that'll give an at-risk child the chance to attend a program for an entire year. So you don't need to do an awful lot to have a big effect on the lives of uh, people who really can do with the support of the Lord's Taverners. They do fantastic work. This is all in the show notes, but Lord's Taverners .org. Have a look. And as I say, a coffee a month, three quid a month can make a massive difference. Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford-Brent and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. It's The Final Word, story time with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Time for the revisits. The numbers we didn't get right the first time or maybe the second time, sometimes even the <laughs> third time. Uh, we've got a, a few that are being held for next week's show, so if you don't hear your name come up today, don't panic. We have not forgotten you, probably. Well, if you don't come up next week, we've probably forgotten you. So let us know then. Uh, but the first of our revisits comes in from our Brazilian soulmate, Andrew Gilbertzal, uh, working with the left side as ever through the middle of the park. The 4.00 that he threw forth, um, where we looked at a few things, done a funny Kirk taking four for none. Uh, obviously things involving Brian Lara, things involving Nathan Lyon, Ravachandran Ashwin. Andrew says, Bom dia, Adam and Jeff. As a left-footed Brazilian midfielder, it delighted me that my nerd pledge came up in the week that the final word went to Brazil. <laughs> the timing was magical, like a cover drive that teleports the ball to the boundary. While I thoroughly enjoyed your canter, none of those options were the right answer. I've enjoyed some of Adam's other work on the bad producer podcast network both calling the shots and the greatest season that was the pledge of 400 was made after listening to the series about the 1999 world cup but does not relate to an event that occurred during the tournament rather subsequent to their performance during the world cup this is a number that one of the guests made a big contribution to as they broke new ground despite experiencing a professional setback along the way what do you got yeah, this is fantastic. Thank you, Andrew, for the chance to talk briefly about Aminul Bulbul Islam. What a guy. Uh, he was one of our guests on the 99 World Cup uh, series of the greatest season that was. He was a real pioneer for Bangladesh cricket through the 80s as they were finding their way before they had that kind of international status. And he was the captain of the team in the 99 World Cup. 
And indeed, when they beat Pakistan in the last group game, he basically said there and then in the post-game presentation, we want to play test cricket, we want to play it now. And one thing led to another. 12 months later, that's exactly what they were doing when they were given test status. So um, a lot of um, weight is given to that post-game interview in terms of uh, influencing those who needed influencing at that important time. So November 2000, uh, the setback that Andrew talks about is that he didn't actually get to lead the team in that first test match, which did hurt him after all that he'd given to Bangladesh cricket over such a long period of time. He was in the team, but not, uh, not as captain, but he did play magnificently. They made 400, the even 400, which Andrew refers to in his pledge, and Bull Bull made 145 coming in at number four. It's the second highest national debut for a side in Test cricket after Bannerman, of course, with his 165. And he's remained very much involved in the game following his retirement from international cricket in 2002. These days, Jeff, he lives in Melbourne working for the ICC. He's done a lot of work around developing cricket in China as well, and yeah, lifelong servant to the game uh, and uh, somebody that's well known in Melbourne cricket circles these days and he was the man who struck 145 in Bangladesh's first test match when they made 400. Very good Adam I like it, I like it from you, I like it from Andrew, I like the work that everybody's done for solving this uh, in, in, in the efforts in the pursuit of solving this uh, I should, should probably learn how to put words together if I'm going to you know, do that professionally. Uh, 400 for Andrew Gilbert So. The next one from Duncan Davies, the 148. We, we've gone around the mulberry tree a few times with this one. We've looked at Sean Marsh. Uh, we were looking at alumni from Duncan's high school. We found that Belinda Clark's 229 had a strike rate of 148, which Duncan says is an amazing coincidence that he did not even notice that that was the case. He says the 148 does represent the score not the strike rate, and so Belinda's 229 far exceeds a score of my high school's alumni currently. Some other famous alumni include a current AFL club captain, a lead singer of an Aussie band with a similar level of fame to Silverchair, who we mentioned last week, and a former Australian cricket selector. Mm. So it is an international score, and judging by the hints we've got, it has to be a score in women's cricket. But there are only three 148s in women's cricket. Yes, yes. So there's Denise Annette, who we also mentioned around 148 a couple of weeks ago, who she made that unbeaten in her final test innings in 1992. So it wasn't that. Tammy Beaumont made 148 in a one-day international, the only 148 Mm -hmm. in a women's one-day international um, in the 2017 World Cup at Bristol against South Africa. But I doubt that Duncan went to school in Kent at Sir Roger Manwood's school, <laughs> to be precise. Uh, if he did, uh, well, that's I doubt great, any AFL club captains did. Exactly, it? exactly. Uh, that's actually right near where cricket was invented. Anyway, so it's far more likely to be uh, Elisa Healy's unbeaten 148, uh, which she made in a T20 international against Sri Lanka at North Sydney Oval in 2019 from just 61 balls. So Elisa Healy at her very best. And given that Elisa went to Barker College in Hornsby, North Shore, of Sydney, that must be where Duncan Davies went as well. And in terms of ticking the box of a few of these, I think Peter Taylor was briefly an Australian selected. Jeff, if memory serves me correctly, he definitely What's was. He? he definitely was the man who gave Shane Warne his twelve month suspension. He was. Okay. He had that um, had that 
uh, responsibility. I reckon he might have been a selector for a while. Uh, Jeff, you've got here that Nick Littlemore of Empire of the Sun uh, went there mm-hmm. too, so that also yep. so works. That's a, that's a lead singer of a band, I guess. Um, would you know? You could say that Empire of the Sun, our Empire of the Sun, as big as Silverchair. No. The burning question on the final <laughs> word this week. The, the answer is um, no. But still, I see where he's going. <laughs> now, unless it could just be that nobody's updated the alumni page recently, and that's why there's no current AFL club captain on there. But I couldn't find any AFL players who went to Barker. There are a lot of rugby players, predictably. The Blackwell sisters went there. Lisa Stalaker went there. Rob Oakeshott went there, a name you'll know from your time in Canberra. And David Astle, who does all the crossword, the cryptic crosswords and whatnot, and the um, <laughs> the word quiz puzzles on um, on ABC Radio in Melbourne. So, look, I, I think that's hopefully close enough, Duncan. And if not, white flag. <laughs> I think we've, we've yes. look, been looking at schools for, for long enough in this pursuit. Yes, if, if we haven't got your school yet, Duncan, you've got to let us know. Uh, so thank you for all the fun correspondence over the last couple of weeks. It's been it's been good crack. Up next, Mel Shawley with the 508. Um, Adam was looking at innings of 548 that all happened in a rush. There was a little bit of a David Boone link as well. Uh, Mel said she enjoyed the gallop and uh, deliberately didn't give a clue for that reason, but her number was not related to bowling figures nor to the short little Tasmanian with the flared pants. It's quite a sad number, an unfulfilled number, if you will, and relates to my memories of my very first experiences of cricket down at Dean Park in Bournemouth, in Dorset now, but used to be in Hampshire. Adam? Yeah, this is nice because my family are from Bournemouth. My mum was born there and raised there and, um, uh, yeah, a great many of my family members spent their entire lives in Bournemouth and I've not been back there for a while but it, and I've not been to Dean Park, it must be said. I didn't know there was a ground in Bournemouth that had hosted so much first-class cricket but Dean Park certainly did and where I got to was Barry Richards and the, the number, the unfulfilled number, is that he only made 508 test runs in the four test matches he played against Australia in, in early 1970 but he was a massive Massive, massive figure at Hampshire across the decade he played there between 1968 and 1978. And looking back through on Cricket Archive, they were playing up to about five county championship games uh, per year at Dean Park in that era. Mm. In his first season uh, for Hampshire in 1968, he led the country making 2,395 runs. Remarkable as a 23-year-old. Then a couple of years later, he played those aforementioned four test matches against Australia, um, averaging 72.6. A couple of centuries and a couple of other half centuries in that series before um, South Africa, of course, went into the international wilderness. Post his international career, he settled in as the permanent opener at Hampshire. Um, He made um, four first-class tons at Dean Park at Bournemouth, which I expect Mel may have seen some of, making 2,500 runs at that ground, a further three um, white ball centuries there too. Um, all up for Hampshire, he made 15,000 runs at 50, 3,800s, 51 centuries if you include the 13 he made in, in white ball cricket. Then over in Australia, he made 1,538 runs at 110 in his brief career for South Australia. That, of course, included um, his 356 against Western Australia in, in 1970-71. A couple of handy bowlers in Lily and McKenzie who he was up against in, in that innings. He was back in Australia for World Series cricket where he played five super tests, made 554 runs, but most known for that famous 207. Again, back in Perth, again against Lily and Co. All up, 
28,000 first-class runs at 55, 80 centuries across 20 seasons, which uh, came to an end in, in 1983. And then in 2009, he was rightly admitted to the ICC Hall of Fame. But for the purpose of Mel Shawley, who's really one of the, the great supporters of our show, such a kind, friendly presence in our lives online, she'll have been watching Barry Richards when she was a kid there at Dean Park, who made 508 test runs. Very good. Thank you, Mel. The number from Seb Goldsmith, the $4.16, I I rattled through about 16 options just to give us some sort of coverage on this number (laughs) and still didn't get it. Um, But Seb says, we may have missed a clue that he left in his correspondence, which indeed we did because it was two words long. The clue was oven mitts which to me suggested that it had to involve wicket-keeping in some way. And uh, a statistical category that I did not include last week was wicket-keeping dismissals. Lo and behold, the top Australian test dismissal taker and the second all-time behind Mark Boucher is one AC Gilchrist with 416 test dismissals. Second on the all-time list in one day as well, um, only 10 behind Kumar Sangakkara with 472. And if you combine it across all formats, um, only took 17 dismissals in T20 internationals, but uh, ended up with 905, which is second to Boucher again on the combined analysis, which is, is interesting that a lot of stats compilers and so on they'll give you the combined dismissals for men's international cricket but not for women's so i spent a sizable portion of my day today making the <laughs> spreadsheet for myself for, because you can look up women's um, international dismissals per format but not altogether. and in doing so adam i realized i don't know if you picked up on this but um, i'd certainly missed it that one of our favorites trisha chetty the long time mm. we keeper for south africa went to the top all time a couple of months ago when Pakistan were playing over in South Africa, she overtook Sarah Taylor as the top dismissal creator of all time in international women's cricket. She's up to 230, Trisha Chetty, and went past Sarah Taylor's uh, 227. Fantastic. I'm surprised it's not more in a way, given how involved wicketkeepers tend to be in women's cricket. Certainly that's the way that Sarah Taylor played the game. But thank mm. you, Seb Goldsmith. I wonder if Adam Gilchrist becomes an... Well, he will become an AC one day. He'll be AC Gilchrist AC. Mm. I wonder if he'll sell Fujitsu air conditioners and then he'll be <laughs> AC Gilchrist AC selling AC. It's time if he's good I enough. If, <laughs> I wonder time. if you'll interview him about the air conditioners <laughs> and it'll be AC interviewing AC Gilchrist AC about AC. <laughs> And maybe he'll end up one day being the chairman of the ACCC, the watchdog. Yes, and on the board of CA. <laughs> well, that, so that what will if almost I, certainly happen. Yeah, that will probably happen. What if AC Gilchrist went to CCC to see what he could CCC, <laughs> but all that he could CCC was AC Gilchrist AC AC. <laughs> it's been good, Jeff. I'm glad we did it. <laughs> you, you can tell we're near the end of the show, can't you? Um <laughs> The revisits, the last of our revisits from Rob Richardson. And all I know is that Adam has been furiously working on this um, and seems very pleased with himself. So last week, Adam was pleased with himself because he found the great Bannerman, one of the great Bannermans, Vijay Hazare's 309 as a Bannerman in the third innings of a first-class match while losing by an innings. Rob Richardson said, Sadly, I was not looking at Indian scorecards for my nerd pledge. It's a county cricket score by a batsman who just avoided fitting the one and only category (laughs) and is probably a bit too young to be a dusty old bastard. Yeah, yeah. So I thought what I should do first here is, before coming to Rob's revisit, um, Pat Rogers... Mm 
partially answered the question that I put last week about whether there'd been any other um, triple century bannermans. Um, mm-hmm. And, of course, there, there has been Jared Kimber's favourite, Bert Sutcliffe, deserves a mention, uh, Pat says. 385, as we know, for Otago against Canterbury in 52-53 out of 500. So that's 77%. Jeff, you've gone through that before as being the highest mm-hmm. score by a left-hander until Brian Lara came along. Yeah, that's correct. 77%. Also the name of an iconic track by The Herd, um, the Australian hip-hop band responding to the polls around the time of the MV Tampa crisis, reporting that 77% of Australians supported John Howard's decision to land the SAS on a freighter vessel and steer it into international waters. As the line in the song goes, 77% of Aussies are racist. And if you were here, I'd say it to your faces. Was that the era when Earthboy was working with the herd as well? Yeah, yeah. So that was that was Earthboy and Ozzy Battler uh, writing the the lyrics for that song. I think that was mostly Ozzy's song, but he, they, it was it was controversial at the time because it got uh, it got the word cunt onto Triple J, um, <laughs> and and it was because the the line says you know this country needs a fucking shake up, wake up, these cunts need to shake up. Um, and so that was being protested in Parliament and all kinds of stuff, saying, you can't put that on the radio. <laughs> and Triple J was like, yeah, we we can though, and we did. Good stuff. The only other part out of that last week, I still want to find out whether there's been a Bannerman whilst losing by an inning. So if if, uh, if someone can work out that for me, I'd be grateful. Pat had one more nugget while we're here, by the way. Um, all this Bannerman talk made me think of Bannerman himself, whether he actually ever went close to 67.35 other than in the first innings in Test cricket. He went mightily close against the players 11 on the 1878 tour to England. At the Oval, he made 51 out of a total of 77 in an innings that featured six ducks and the left-arm round-arm of E.D. Barrett, who took 10 for 43. But Bannerman made 66.23%. So he didn't quite get a Bannerman himself in that low-scoring mm. game. So cheers to Pat as we go back through now to Rob's 309. So as he says, we're looking for someone who's not quite a one and only dusty old bastard and uh, made the score in county cricket, which must be Steve James. J-Mo, our colleague from the Times, who played two test matches, not one, uh, for England. England in, in 1998. Thus, as deduced by Rob, that means he can't be a, a dusty old bastard because he's not a one and only, which is fair enough. I'll, I'll take that. I'll take well, that. No, um, just that he's not old enough to be a dusty. You could be a dusty old bastard with like, yeah. I reckon six or seven tests, you can still be a dusty no, old I, I, No, I agree. But I think, he's, I think he's combined the two, saying a combination of hmm. not being a one test player and hmm. also the age means that he doesn't qualify. And I agree with him. That's fine. But what JMO did do was score a shitload of runs for Glamorgan over the years hmm. uh, after arriving there from Cambridge. He made nearly 16,000 first-class runs, 47 tonnes across an 18-year career, which ended in 2003. But in 2000, so a couple of years after his test matches against South Africa and Sri Lanka, he was going stronger than ever and batting first at Colwyn Bay in North Wales, which is the ground I'm so hoping to get to this year if uh, Glamorgan play Lancashire there, which they have in the past. Um, Glamorgan made 718 for three (laughs) across two days in the middle, two dominant days in the middle, 162 overs. And JMO made 309 of those. He batted throughout, uh, 309 not out, 491 deliveries, 41 boundaries. And they still had enough time on day three and day four to bowl Sussex out twice uh, to win by an innings and 60 runs. 
Steve James was was captain of the club by then. He took them to a, a couple of uh, white ball trophies under his stewardship. And 309, uh, the number from Rob, uh, was the highest score in Glamorgan history and remains the case 21 years later. So uh, thank you to Rob Richardson for giving us a chance to talk about one of the best people in cricket, Steve James. <laughs> Excellent. That takes us to the end of the revisit. Some confirmations, and we had some lovely correspondence in with the confirmations as well. Franz 46.55, um, which we deduced was the test batting average of one Dean Mervyn Jones. Indeed it was. Uh, what a delight it was, writes Fran, Friday a week ago to wake up to an email notification that episode 24 was ready for a listen. And in the show notes, there was my nerd pledge number. So I did what any self-respecting listener should do and delayed my commute to work until I could listen. <laughs> I particularly appreciate you not dismissing it as an easy pledge and giving Dino's test career the time he deserved. Fran, there was never any chance that Adam was going to do anything but that, don't worry. Uh, she says, his axing from the test team was pretty baffling at the time, even to non-Victorians. And yes, a batting average does need two digits after the decimal. I don't know if you can see our patron profile pics. We can, and, and I have seen this, Fran. But mine is with Dino at a 4X Gold Beach Cricket Tournament on the Gold Coast circuit 2009. <laughs> and your timing is impeccable as I was planning on changing my pledge once the amount was deducted at the end of this month. I figured that would take me up to being even with about a year's worth of a smaller pledge after not pledging in 2020. Now to come up with another one. Well, thank you very much, Fran. And uh, nobody has to meet a certain number, by the way. You can you can throw in as small or as large or as long or as short as you feel feel like or not at all and just listen to the show because uh, we like you for doing that as well but thanks Fran. And Fran your timing is also impeccable on the basis that Dino uh, would have turned 60 yesterday um, so there was another round of tributes to uh, the great DM Jones uh, who passed away last October and thanks again for that brilliant pledge and clue. Next on the revisits Chris Unwin uh, I told the Simon Kerrigan broader story he was the 656th test player for England and uh, Chris goes on to say of course it was kegs uh, and more importantly I'm so pleased you focused on his successes and potential for far more and more importantly his contribution to that famous long-awaited championship win for Lancashire in 2011 we played a lot of outground cricket that season where Kerrigan really thrived that a county of its size pedigree and talent waited so long really is quite something as someone with family fault lines across other sports, it was great to celebrate something so momentous with my dad when Lanks finally did win in 2011. So thanks, Chris, for that. The 508 that he also had last week, Jeff, is explained away on the basis that Kerrigan is wearing cap 508 for Northants at the moment. So oh. that, that's where the two numbers were, oh. were, were linked without, uh, okay. without being necessarily the same thing. So I'm still hoping to try and interview Simon Kerrigan at some point. This inspired me uh, last week, it must be said, to try and tell his full story. I've, I've not been successful yet, but who knows? Maybe at some stage this year he'll, uh, he'll want to sit down and have a chat about his career at large. And if he does, uh, I'd embrace that opportunity. Uh, Jeff, next up, Sam Ashworth. Yep, the 148. We had quite a few 148s, um, several people with that number. Adam, eventually track this down to the 148 consecutive T20 matches played by Stephen Croft 
of Blackpool when he was playing for Lancashire. Sam says, it was, of course, Crofty. Annoyingly, I thought he had the world record for consecutive games, but it turns out that's Suresh Rayner for Chennai Super Kings. Uh, well, Rayner has... Is he done? Has he, has he wrapped up? He has. He finished up last yeah. year with Dhoni, did he not? Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not mm. sure whether he finished up from playing... Uh, he pulled out of the last season, but I'm not sure. I don't... I yeah. think he might have decided that that was it. He, well, he, he retired from yeah, he retired from international cricket in August and he was right. going to play in the IPL. It'll be interesting to see, I suppose, whether he's in the IPL next month. Mm. Yeah, because they went, there were a few people who weren't too happy with him pulling out of the last edition. Nonetheless, uh, Sam goes on to say, it was good to hear Crofty get a run on the final word and Kerrigan as well. He was superb for lengths, especially before Watto got to him. I remember listening to the call of that nine for on the radio on the run into the title that season. Also good to hear Paul Edwards get a shout out, <laughs> one of my favourite cricket writers on the circuit. I remember him writing about Hasib Hamid when he was starting to have his troubles. One of my favourite lines ever. Young Hamid will soon learn that being an opener in England is a lot like sitting by a pond. If you do it for long enough, you're going to see a few ducks. <laughs> Fantastic, Sam. Thank you. It's been a bit of a Lanx love-in on this edition of the show, and why not? Uh, we both love Manchester, so let's do it. Um, a few here from me in quick succession. Michael Fitzy Fitzgerald, we said Hobart was the 62nd test venue, and he said we nailed it. Thank you for steering us there, uh, Fitzy, over the course of a couple of weeks. Sukrit Manjul uh, and the 571. Jeff pointed towards Ajit Agurka's half century being the fastest in ODIs for India. Well, how about this? It was about Ajit Agurka. However, the fastest of 50 was about him reaching 50 wickets in ODIs, the fastest, not 50 runs. I did not realise he had the record for the fastest ODI 50 for an Indian while batting as well. So that's a nice twist on that, Jeff. But we got to the right person. We got to the right number, just the wrong way around. But we're pleased we did it that way because it means we learnt a new thing along the way. Thank you to Sukrit. 231 was Steve Lofthouse. We explored uh, WA's WNCL uh, victory in 2019-2020. And Steve said we nailed it. It was a historic win uh, by WA, he said. Too bad the defence didn't go so well this year. And he laments the fact that there were so many national players uh, who were out of the, the final stanza of the competition. Uh, we talked about that on the weekly show a couple of days ago, Steve. And the last one from me for now is from Chris Dobbins, 204. We cited Greg Chappell's innings of 204 uh, in 1981 against India at the SCG. Chris says, well done, Adam, on guessing Greg Chappell was my nerd pledge. To tell you the truth, I couldn't remember the opposition that day 40 years ago. Only the figure of 204, which is seared into my brain. I'm going to try and find the highlights online now. Well, I can tell you, Chris, you can, because I watched them last week. <laughs> I love the amount of uh, YouTube highlights, internet traffic that must get yes. driven from this show. <laughs> we talk about something and you're like, oh, I think I want to watch that back. Well, you can. 247 from John O'Halen, our Hicks Watch correspondent, who was also in the Nerd Pledge Mixer a couple of weeks ago. Um, we trace that back to Wavell Hines making 247 runs as the Windies got whitewashed by Steve Waugh's team in 2000-01. Uh, Jono says, the way you throw yourselves into these numbers is truly remarkable. Yes, Wavell Hines and his 247 were what I had in mind. As you alluded to, Hines did have a crack at politics last year for the People's National Party, who are the centre-left Social Democratic Party in Jamaica. He lost to his opponent from the Jamaica Labour Party, which, to confuse matters, are the Conservatives in that nation. <laughs> Wavell Hines, a great player, now doing great things. Well, if the um, if the Liberal Party in Australia can be the 
Conservatives, then the Labor Party in Jamaica can be the Conservatives as well. Like, who knows what anything is? Yeah, sounds good to me. John O'Hale. I mean, according to some really smart people on the internet, National Socialists were socialists, even though oh, they yeah, spent yeah. their time killing communists. Yeah, hmm, Con- figure that one out. Conchetta Ferrovati Wells is still in the Senate, remarkably. Um, yeah. And she detailed on Twitter this week why she never, ever, ever, ever should have been pre selected for any parliament anywhere. The last revisit is 126 from an urban. Uh, we talked about uh, eventually uh, Mandraker and Gooch after it was solved for us. And Urban says, I'm pleased to have occasioned some communal effort, though I do share Adam's annoyance at unintentionally directing the conversation to Mandraker. I must have, as ever, been too distracted by Gooch's moustache. And I thoroughly enjoyed the many anecdotes in the Derek Ishmael Khan episode. If there were ever another effort to recruit a first-class Smokers 11, I could consider myself... I could consider seeing if they'll have me. <laughs> So uh, yeah, well, I suppose if, if the Smokers Eleven's brought back to uh, brought back to life again, and Urban, we'll, we'll put your name forward. Look, if it's a possibility of getting a first class game, then you know I'd take them up for the week. <laughs> Just blend in, get back. Get back I wonder on the how darts. they, yeah, yeah, I was going to say, get back on the darts. Maybe if you just smoke some cones, you might get a chance to play for them as well. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Um, score 420 with the, uh, the Kookaburra Blaze. Um, that, that is the end of the revisits and the confirmations, except for this last confirmation, which is a new spin on Bannerman. Okay, so that. The nerd pledge number was 214. We eventually came back to a tied T20 match between New Zealand and Australia in 2010 when both sides made 214. Uh, New Zealand won in a super over, which got some other people thinking about super overs Mm. as well. So Paul Reeve says, congrats, guys. You nailed the 214 and I enjoyed the discussion around it. A great match with real ebb and flow. I promised you a cheeky twist on a bannerman. In that match... Australia lost one wicket in their super over and this got me thinking, what if they had lost two? Does a super over count as an innings which is completed if two wickets are lost? Can we pretend it does just for a few minutes? Come down the rabbit hole with me. I believe, says Paul, there is only one T20 international super over where a side lost both wickets. New Zealand v the West Indies in 2008 and the runs were shared around. There's one other match between Qatar and Kuwait that he can't find details for the Super Over for. He says, in one-day international cricket, there have been two Super Overs. One is rather famous, and we probably don't need to go into it. The other, uh, Pakistan v Zimbabwe in 2020, did feature two wickets, with Pakistan scoring two for two. Frustratingly, however, that was one run each for the two dismissed batsmen, so no Bannerman. (laughs) Nothing fits the bill in women's internationals. Next highest level of cricket, a few IPL matches do fit the bill. Manish Pandey scored eight runs out of 11, or 72%, when Rajasthan played Kolkata. Uh, Steve Smith scored five not out out of six for two, which is 83% when (laughs) Rajasthan played the Kings Eleven Punjab in 2015. But we can do better because in 2013, the Delhi Daredevils versus Royal Challengers Bangalore chasing 15 runs. David Warner is out first ball. 
Irfan Patan scores 15 off the next four and Ben Rohrer is out of the last ball. So Irfan Patan scored 100% of the runs <laughs> in a completed super over. This feat was matched twice in 2020 um, by Abdul Samad for Sunrisers Hyderabad and Kale Rahul for Kings Eleven Punjab. They less impressively scored two runs out of a total of two. So if you've made it this far, says Paul, three Bannerman busting 100% ratios for a completed innings if you're prepared to grant that as an innings. In this case, maybe we are. I just love the wormhole we've sent him down there. So uh, a great way to uh, round off what was a, a very fun nerd pledge. So uh, thank you, Paul Ree, for pulling that all together for us. That's excellent. We have some more conventional Bannermans, if you like, <laughs> before we go. A quick note on the way through uh, from Matthew Fidge on Twitter. We said on the, the weekly Fidgerator. show, we said on the weekly show that, well, we were looking at a, an instance where a player has scored 100% of the runs chasing and, and it couldn't be a Bannerman because obviously they, they hadn't lost all the wickets. And then we thought about yeah. it a bit more. I'm like, well, hang on. Does that mean that you can't actually get a Bannerman whilst chasing full stop? Because if you're chasing in a successful run chase, then how could you possibly a successful well, not while chase? chasing to win. You, you can get a Bannerman in a losing, in a losing run chase, yeah, but not a, not, yes. not a successful chase. And Matthew Fitch... Well, but we decided that you could... Only if uh, you drew scores level and then subsequently won the super over because you would win yes. the match. But if the 10th wicket fell from the last ball with scores level, you would still have a Bannerman in a winning match. And you can get a second Bannerman, as Paul explained before, by yeah. getting uh, the, the, uh, the, the the ratio in, the, um, mm. in that playoff as well. But no, so what Matt wanted to draw our attention to is the fact that if you lost the last wicket being stumped off a wide when scores were level, that would get the job done. Smart. I Very like that good. thinking. That, that wouldn't get you 100% of the runs, which I think the context we came into this with was a player scoring 49 out of 49 in a run chase. Um, it and, was, but I'm not picky. I, yeah. I mean, if we can get a bat, if yeah. we can find a way to abandon in a successful chase, as Matthew has, then I'm happy mm. to go with that. We've got one here from Glenn Shepherd who sent us a tweet with a page from a book, which he summarises by saying, just reading Paul Brickhill's account of World War II legend pilot Douglas Bader, whilst training at Cranwell RAF Flying School in the late 1920s, he scored 194 out of 227 in an in-house game. Not exactly first class, but an impressive 85.5 Bannerman rating. I agree. And it doesn't need to be a first class game. We've proven that in the last few weeks. If you've got a Bannerman, any game, any score, mm -hmm. the higher the better. It just needs to be in an innings where all the wickets have fallen and there is a player who scored in excess of 67.35% of the runs. That's it. That's all we want. Uh, yes, Paul Brickhill wrote The Great Escape, which the theme song to which I was whistling just then. Just, just you know, We're just doing some audio sculpting on our show, <laughs> some, some sound collage, if you will. And Greg Sykes has a story to polish this off. I would like to enter into consideration a game that happened in 2013, says Greg, at Hayworth... I assume is the pronunciation. Our fourth team were playing Dunnington Thirds. Lots of juniors getting experience of adult cricket in the York Vale League, village cricket. 13-year-old Harry Shepherd took nine for 33. Surely that was a match-winning performance. Well, not quite, because when Dunnington were 25 for six, in came Kevin Bradley, a former professional who had played in the first 11 that season. He hit 198 not out in a score of 253 <laughs> All out, a ratio of 78.26%. You know it's bad when every over that Hayworth brought the field in, 
he lobbed it over the top at the end of the over and took a, a single run <laughs> and carried on battering from the other end. Only one other player made double figures with 19. The next best score was six. Hayworth gamely made 159 in reply but were no match. At least he didn't bowl. The local paper gave Harry the, man, the player of the match <laughs> for his nine wickets but he was overshadowed by the 198 not out. Yeah, I just I just went and had a quick look at Harry's profile page after this. So he takes nine for thirty three at age thirteen, but unfortunately he was uh, he was done by age seventeen. He didn't play any more cricket. So maybe a, a mention on the final word will be enough for um, for Harry to uh, return in twenty twenty one. Let us know if he does. Come back to us, Harry. Come back to us. Uh, imagine a, an institution in Britain trying to get a Harry to return to them. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure they're. I'm not sure they're trying that hard for that. <laughs> Jeff, we've got a couple of bits of correspondence to finally round out the show. Uh, the first isn't from Tom Stewart, but it was prompted by his 243 last week. I'm not sure whether we got Tom Stewart's number correct, but we did sort of discuss that we'd had a 342, and now we have mm-hmm. a 243, and maybe this is just the reverse of that for the English scoreboard. So three mm. for two, which is what how we in Australia would say uh, what Australia were reduced to against England at Adelaide early in the 2010 Test match. And if you were English, you would describe it as 243. Now, I put out to the audience, well, why is this? Why do we have the scoreboard different in Australia? And we uh, heard back uh, via Geoffrey Gabriel, who linked us through to an article from the Sydney Morning Herald in 2005. The question was answered by Ralph Sadler. Now, I'll read out what he wrote. Cricket scoreboards in England were, and in many cases still are, minimalist in the information given. The names of players did not appear on the scoreboard, only the order which the batsmen batted. The scoreboard looked as follows. Number one, total number three on the top line. Then the second line, 24, 89, 17. And then the third line, wickets one, which, Jeff, makes sense. I mean, I've seen many scoreboards in England that look that way. So as a consequence, so it's said by Ralph Sadler, commentators would give the score top line first, followed by the number of wickets lost, hence 89 for one wicket. When Mm -hmm. Ned Gregory built his first scoreboard at the Sydney Cricket Ground in 1896, His board listed the batsmen by name with the details of the wickets under their names, but before the total score. Thus, top line, Bradman 100, second line, Miller 63, third line, two for 188. And Gregory's scoreboard became the model for similar scoreboards across Australia and is still possible to see such a board at Adelaide Oval. And that's the reason. It's down to the way the scoreboards were put together in Australia in the late... 1800. So, Jeff, you're right. It wouldn't be a decision. It would be just part of the custom that was something, some quirk along the way, and it, and it feels as though something it was, happened. Something Someone happened. did a thing. And this is the then thing some other did. people did a similar thing. And some other people did a similar thing. It's quite the legacy, though. You think about Ned Gregory, who was a scoreboard maker, has changed the entire way that scores are read in Australia forever. Yep, and and has created a really tedious argument about people who think that their way is better versus (laughs) the other way. It's like, who cares? It it doesn't. It's a score. You get both parts of it. You know, Um, you can make an argument as to why one is better, but it really doesn't make much of a difference. Um, But yeah, look. Maybe if everyone else is doing it the other way, we should catch up. Our last little note, we told the story last week about the delivery of Chesney Hawks, not the bowling delivery, but the midwife delivery. Jennifer Baxter was the midwife who delivered Chesney and also the mother of our uh, contributor and patron, Robin Fritz, who uh, would also like to clarify that Robin Fritz is a male Robin, not a female Robin. We've had both 
and we could have other kinds that are not either of those things as well. I suppose the male robin has the the red feathers on the front, and that's how you tell it apart. That's, uh, but we're working in a non-visual medium, so uh, Robin has clarified that. But that's not the key thing. Robin wants to say thank you for mentioning my mum on the show. Uh, I'll genuinely send your love to her. She's not too well right now and cricket really does keep her going. She still lives in Berkshire, which is where I grew up. Well, Jennifer, we send much love and all fond wishes to you. Thanks for bringing Chesney into our world, for bringing Robin into our world and for bringing yourself into our world. And that takes us to the end of the show, Adam. It certainly does. Thanks to everybody for the great feedback when we put these shows out. Um, we know they are niche to an extent, but that isn't reflected in the in the listening numbers. As many people are listening to Storytime as are listening to the, the weekly show, which is really cool. It, it suggests that we're doing something right here on the weekend. So thanks for all the feedback and all the nerd pledges. We're still in our hunt for James Anderson. We're on... 602 or something like that Anderson's mm-hmm. on 614 test wickets So if you want to help us in that final push To overtake Jimmy before he plays his first Test match this year that would be just delightful To Seba Super and to Lords Taverners who are our commercial partners Thank you for having supported us uh, Through 2021 so far and for a long time before that. And lastly, thank you to the team at Bad Producer Productions uh, for getting us on the park a couple of times a week, especially Dave Collins, DC, for having to listen to a lot of Jeff and me uh, talking hour after hour about obscure numbers from many years ago. So much, so much so. I mean, I imagine, say, next time we actually get to like sit in a pub with DC, if we're both speaking, his hands will just start trying to edit by <laughs> just just by muscle memory. He'll be like, "Well, I'll take that bit out." That's waffling on, self indulgent. Um, so yeah, thanks <laughs> thanks for listening to more of this show than just about anybody. Uh, that's it. It's the final word. Story time. Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins. We will be with you at next week for the weekly show, which comes out on Wednesdays at the moment. And in the meantime, we'll be on the YouTubes doing our match wraps of the uh, the one-day international series between India and England. And we're popping up some other stuff there too, sort of other videos we've found that we forgot that we had. And we're putting these shows out as YouTube vids and all kinds of other stuff as well. So if you haven't jumped on there, there's a channel called The Final Word Cricket Podcast. You'll probably be able to work out which one it is. Uh, that's it. We'll see you next week. Have a nice weekend. If you wrote this, so you know what I meant here. I had to go.